You came back. Thanks. <laughs> it's, it's just so wonderful to be here with you, and it's just so inspirational. I just have to... Isn't it beautiful when Jesus works in our lives, and when we do it together, and when we watch him set each other free, and, and we turn around and then pray for somebody else, and, you know, that's heaven forever. I, I mean, it's just... It's just so glorious to be here with you tonight, and I thank you for having me. Um, before we get started, I'm going to make you just endure just a couple more pictures, because I didn't show you all my grandkids this morning. So, <laughs> this, uh, these, these are like some of my favorite pictures. I don't know what it is. You know, Mike says it's a sickness in me, but I love when the pictures go wrong. You know, they're my favorite ones. And, and so over in the corner with the three, those are my three grandchildren in the bottom. That They live in Mexico City, and I don't see them very often. And Gabrielle is the one, like, holding her elbow and crying. And I, I got to be in Mexico when she was born. And uh, it's, it, it'll be, and David was born when I was in the hospital with leukemia. And, and Amelia's in the middle. She's pointing you know, to, to Gabriella, but that girl, Gabriella, I, hel I held her the first time, and everybody thought she was just so peaceful, and I just held her in my arms. I looked at my son, Josh, and I said, this child is a force of nature, <laughs> and, and, and cleverly disguised as a quiet little baby, and she is, tr she is proven to be that. I just can't wait to see. Then, they, th th this was a few years ago where all four of them were together and all my kids were together just for, just for like three days or so and I wanted a family picture so bad and do you think that my adult kids would you know, cooperate with me? No way. So I was whining and pouting and being all of that, you know, and then, but they dumped them all off at home for me to babysit so they could go do things and so I said to Mike, I'm not letting them ruin this for me. At least I can have a picture of my grandkids. So I threw them all up on the couch, and Gabriella started again, you know? <laughs> it is cracking me up. So then we finally got her calmed down, which is the next picture. Yeah, there they go. Look, and, there, and, and that's Henry, the, the white one in the middle. I told you I'd show you him. And, and he's just looking like, who sent these crazy Mexican cousins here, you know? And he's, Henry's three now. We, we babysit him on Fridays, and we would bring him in the van and uh, pick him up early and take him, and he, was, he would cry at first. So we made up a little song for, for him, and we would sing it and, and it, and there was part of it that went, you know, I love Henry Perkins harder. He's the Henryest harder I know, and that would stop him from crying. And so when he first learned to say his name, it drove my son nuts for, for about six months. He'd say, Henry, what's your name? And he'd go, Henry Perkins harder I know. <laughs> Oh, I just love those kids. <laughs> so I just had to show you that. So anyway, let's pray before we get started tonight, will we? Lord, we just have to say thank you. Thank you for your presence that's with us tonight. Thank you for um, opening up our eyes and letting us see your glory. Thank you for loving us, for redeeming us, for saving us for sending your son to die for us, but not leaving at that. He rose from the dead 
so that your resurrection life can live in us. God, take this night. Do what you want in our lives. It's yours. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, tonight I, I'm going to share um, a little bit of scripture and, and mostly my personal journey with uh, a trial I went through by the name of leukemia. And I, so I chose the title for tonight's talk for really what I found to be true in my life, which is overcome with pain and surprised by power. Um, and, and what really matters the most tonight is not what happened to me with leukemia or, or even maybe anything I say, but what, what happens the most and what I've asked Jesus for is that he will just speak so closely to your heart and that you will know that he is your shepherd and you are his sheep and that whatever you face in life, I love this picture because It just reminds me that, you know, I may be a pastor, a mom, a grandma, I may lead people, but I get to be a sheep. I get to be a dumb sheep that has a wise shepherd, right? So I don't care if you forget anything I say the rest of the night. I just pray that you feel empowered to be a dumb shepherd and that you know a a dumb sheep that has a a wise shepherd. (laughs) And and that, that just takes me so much when I let people down or when I have meetings that don't just go the way way I think. I I just remember that I get to be a sheep. I get to have a shepherd. So um, I'm going to start tonight by reading Mark 2, verses 1 through 12. Uh, In September of 2006, we were preparing as a church to go through a series that we were calling Breakthrough, and it was going to be in the the book of Mark, and I had spent a lot of time preparing small group information, and and it was just a really busy time of year. And so I had, weeks before that, read this story, and it really jumped out at me. And again tonight, I'm going to read in the message. And it starts this way. After a few days, Jesus returned to Capernaum. And word got around that he was back home. And a crowd gathered, jamming the entrance so that no one could get in or out. He was teaching the word, and they brought a paraplegic to him, carried by four men. There's that picture again, isn't it? Bear one another's burdens. And when they weren't able to get in because of the crowd, they removed part of the roof. Now, that's a really good friend, okay? <laughs> that is radical determination. That, that, I think they would be really good friends with Ruth. And they removed part of the roof and lowered the pe- paraplegic on his stretcher. Impressed by their bold belief, Jesus said to the paraplegic, son, I forgive your sins. Do you think he thought, wow, I was hoping for a little more than that? <laughs> I, I mean, I do. I really like wonder. Like, wh- and what went through his friend's mind? You know, we just cut a hole in the roof, and all you're doing is forgiving sins. You know, I'm not really sure, but, but I love to just read these things and just imagine, you know, what must have been going through their mind at the time. And some religion scholars sitting there started whispering among themselves, he can't talk that way. That's blasphemy. God and only God can forgive sins. You know, that's like, you know, when you stand up and I'm not going to be ashamed anymore and all the demons in hell say, she can't talk that way. Yes, you can. So that's a sidebar. That's not in the message. (laughs) Jesus knew right away what they were thinking and said, why are you so skeptical? Which is simpler, 
to say to the paraplegic, I forgive your sins, or say, get up, take your stretcher, and start walking. Well, just so it's clear that I'm the son of man and authorized to do either or both, he looked now at the paraplegic, get up, pick up your stretcher, and go home. And the man did it. Got up, grabbed his stretcher, and walked out with everyone there watching him. They rubbed their eyes incredulous and then praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And I just, in September of 2006, had grabbed a hold of this story, and I just started praying for this breakthrough series and saying, God, I just pray that you'll move in our hearts and that we'll, you know, as a church, we'll just say, we've never seen anything like this. And so it was September 26th, and all of my children were home. David, the oldest boy in that picture of my grandchildren from Mexico, we were expecting David, our first grandchild, and Josh and Danya were getting ready to move to Mexico City. They're there uh, pastoring a vineyard church now, and they had had two miscarriages before, and so we were so excited about this baby, and um, I had never experienced that loss before. I had never had a miscarriage, and I had, I, it just stung me so much as a grandmother. And so I had planned this surprise baby shower for Danya. All the kids were home, and I pulled it off. Nobody's ever surprised her before. And as a mother-in-law doing that to a daughter-in-law, it just was so really precious to me, you know? And I was just having the time of my life. And I was about 49 then, and but I was tired, you know, like I'd run up and down the steps and I was out of breath and I would just keep saying to myself, wow, it really sucks to be almost 50. You know, I am really out of shape. I've got to do something, you know, or it's bad. I'm, you know, so sorry about that. But that's what I really said to myself. And so, um, Mike, and then I, I, had, I had a few bruises like on my arms and my feet and, and so Mike had made a doctor's appointment, called to make a doctor's appointment for me. And so we had the baby shower on Sunday. Monday the boys were, I don't know, they all went and did something together and we were staying up and, and my daughter-in-law, Donya, just started asking Mike and I, how did we find Jesus? And all these wonderful questions, you know, like just, it's just like a dream to have those conversations with your daughter-in-law. And, but I was just so tired. And I went out into the kitchen and said to Mike, Honey, I've got to go downstairs and go to bed. We had moved to the uh, basement on like an air mattress so everybody could have the bedrooms. And so I, I, he, he went down with me. And, and at that point, I was crying. I said, I, I just hate missing that, but I just can't stay awake. And so the next morning I got up, September 26th, it was her birthday. I made her a great big breakfast and everything. And my doctor's appointment was at 9.30. And we were just finishing up. And I said to Mike, do you want to go with me or should I go by myself? He said, oh, just, just go for your, by yourself. It's okay. And I said, yeah, I'm probably just anemic. And that's why I'm bruising everywhere. And so I went off to the doctor all by myself. And I like my doctor because he's like, he, he's straight talking and, but he has a crazy sense of humor, and he just, like, he really gives it to you, like, cuts to the chase, you know. And so he came in, and, and his first thing through the door was, why is Mike making an appointment for you? He, you know, what's, what's the deal? You know, why do you need a consultation? I said, oh, is that what he said? I just have a few bruises, and I think I'm anemic, so I just want you to, like, check it out. And, and he, he said, 
okay, jump up and sit down here. And, and then he made his joke and said, you know, well, at least Mike's not giving you the bruises and calling for the appointment. And we both laughed. And um, then he said, well, show me the bruises. And so I had little capris on. I lift them up and I showed him the bruises. And by then I had bruises where my sandals were that I had read the, just in the shape of my sandals. My top of my feet were bruised and my and he goes, do you have any more of those? And by then I had them on my arm. They were like a purple, like just a purple sheath down here. And almost just anywhere I touched myself, I had one. And, and, um, he, and I started joking. And he stopped joking. And he just looked at me. And, and I, I kept joking. And he wouldn't joke. And I thought, wait. I don't think this is good. And um, so I said, I'm anemic, right? And he said, well, I don't know. We're going to call for, we're going to take a blood test. So he had the nurse come in to get a blood, uh, to stick me, you know, and get a blood sample. And then that was really weird because when she took the needle out, it was like a fountain of blood just shooting out of my arm like that, you know, and, and then instantly like a huge bruise right here. And so he came in and he said, we'll, we'll have those results in about three or four minutes. But he said, I just want to tell you right now, Sherry, that if you're lucky, you have sickle cell anemia, but I don't think that's what it is. And then he walked out, and I thought, I don't think sickle cell anemia is good. You know how I'm like putting it together in my mind, like, like I don't think that's good, so if I'm lucky, I have that. Gee, what is going on? And then he came back in, and he had my blood results, and my platelet levels were, were like below 10,000. My red blood cells were like seven and a half. And I, these are tanking numbers. They mean something to me now. They, they really didn't then. And, and he said, he said, there is something really wrong with you. And he said these numbers. And I just said, Hansi, I call, I didn't call him Dr. Hansi. I called him Hansi. I said, Hansi, that doesn't mean anything to me. And, and he said, I, I think you probably have blood cancer. I don't know. He said, you're going to have to go to the, the cancer center. I'm calling to make an appointment. And I said, okay. I said, Thursday's a good day for me because all my kids will have flown out by then. You know, you just don't get it. I, I, at least I didn't get it, you know. And so he came over to me and knew me really well. And he grabbed me by the shoulders and looked me in the eyes and said, you are going to go today to the cancer center as soon as you can possibly go. And you have 24 to 48 hours to live. And you are not going to go home after you go there. You're not waiting till Thursday. And I just kept waiting for him to laugh or something, you know? And can you tell by now, laughter is my love language, just to let you know. <laughs> and so... I, so he sent me away, and, I, and by then I'm just I'm such, so in a state of shock. And then I'm thinking, wow, if I could die any minute, you're letting me drive my car home. What's going on, you know? And I didn't have a cell phone then. And so I get in the car, and I'm driving home, and I, I'm just, I literally really experienced that thing where there's no tears, there's nothing. I'm just in complete, really, shock. And I walked in, and the, and, and the biggest miracle, I think, of my whole story tonight is this. My kids did the dishes while I was gone. <laughs> I couldn't believe it. You know, I thought, how do they know I could die in 24 hours, you know? So I, I just walked past them and went right back to the office where Mike was working. And then the tears came when I saw Mike. And I said, I just showed him a card and I said, I'm supposed to go here. I'm supposed to be there by 11. While I was doing that, they were calling Mike on his cell phone saying, you need to get here right now, not at 11. And it was only 10 o'clock then, you know? 
And so we just basically told the kids, something's wrong, we don't know. And we went to the cancer center. And I was sitting there looking at all these cancer patients in the waiting room, which was a total education for me again. And I was just thinking, I do not want to be you. It's just all I kept thinking, (laughs) which is a bad thought. But I still, I'm just telling you the truth. That's what I thought. And so the nurses were taking my blood. and, And so I'm fishing for good news. And they drew blood from here. And then they drew blood from here. And I said, well, why are you drawing blood from both places? And I was already like bruised from the morning before. And they said, well, we just need to check from both veins because sometimes people can have a blood infection and it's really hard to catch. And I said, oh, do people come in here sometimes and think that they have cancer, but then it's really a blood infection? And now I know that the look on their face was like, this girl is really in denial, you know? <laughs> and and they, they humored me though. And they just said, well, you know, you never know. No, but I guess that could be possible. And I went, and Mike and I simultaneously said, we vote for a blood infection. <laughs> and so then I, I, they, uh, they took me back. Oh, and then the nurses said, well, have you ever heard of leukemia? And, and I said, yes, kids get that, and then they go to St. Jude's, and they get better. <laughs> and they said, well, adults can get that too. So then I go back and I see the nurse who's checking me out and asking all these questions who says, have you ever heard of leukemia? And I think, wow, they are really setting me up here, I think, you know. And the story goes on that my oncologist came in and, and did a bone marrow biopsy right there. I asked her, can't you put me to sleep, you know? And she said, no, we're not going to do that. And, and then um, sent me down for a platelet transfusion because at that point she gave me the talk again. You know, your, your brain could just start to bleed right now. And, and by then my head was just spinning. And, and I said to Mike, what if we have the wrong doctor? What if we're in the wrong place? I feel like everybody's taking all my choices away from me. And I'm such a researcher. So like, you know, I hadn't been able to do my due diligence to make sure I was in the right place. And Mike just said, Sherry, you know, if we're in the wrong place, God will put us in the right place. It's okay, you know? And so we went down, and while we were waiting for the platelets to come, my oncologist came down and said, yes, you know, you do have leukemia, and we're, get, we're trying to find a room. There's no room on the cancer floor, but we're trying to find a room for you, and we'll admit you right away. She said, I think we should have one in 15 minutes. And I said, oh, wait a minute. I'm going home to tell my kids And she said, you are not going home. And I said, all my kids are in one place, and I am going home at least for a half an hour to tell my kids face-to-face what is going to happen. I only live 10 minutes from here. And I think that's probably another miracle. She actually let us do it and said to Mike, you know, look, Three times when you stop at a stop sign, if you get in an accident, it could be the end. She said, I really shouldn't let you take her home, but I will. You have to be back in an hour. So we went home, and um, we, all the kids, the kids had called, and, and everybody had been there by, by then. And um, we gathered them together in a circle, and we told them what was going on. And we just joined hands, and... And we prayed, and we sang, and worshiped God together. It was one of the sweetest, most tender moments of my entire life. My one son, who um, we had almost lost to drugs and was really still bitter at all of us at that point, but all my kids had gone together to buy him a plane ticket to bring him home for this baby shower. 
And he just kept sobbing, sobbing, sobbing. And then I went in the office and I just started to give my life away. It was the weirdest feeling. Like, here's this message series that we've planned. Here's all the small group stuff. Here's the curriculum for the kids' Sunday school. Like, I just gave my whole life away because my cancer doctor had said, you're going to be in the hospital for four, maybe eight weeks, this first series of chemo. We're going to make you an AIDS patient on your deathbed four times because they had caught my leukemia so far down the road that I needed even more treatment than normal. And, and she said, and we're just going to, you know, hope that you come back. And while Mike and I were walking out of the cancer center to go tell the kids, we just were holding hands in complete quiet and not really knowing, you know, what to say to each other. And it was like Mike read my mind because I was thinking in my mind, this is a win-win for me. You know, if I die, I'm, I beat my whole family to heaven, and I'm the first one with Jesus. I'm also pretty competitive. And, um, <laughs> and, and I'm thinking, you know, and, and if I don't, I, somehow I believe God's going to meet me in this. And, and, and Mike just read my mind almost, and he said, this is not. I mean, I didn't say that out loud. I said it in my mind. And Mike said, Sherry, this is a lose-lose for me, and I am asking you to fight. And I just said, well, I need the Holy Spirit to tell me that because right now I feel like a pretty big chicken. And so then my kids were, that we got home, we told the kids that, and so we load up in the car. The kids are calling the family. That's their job to tell everybody else. And the last thing we said before I walked out the door with the kids was, he said, what do we do about the church? I said, what do you want me to do? You want me to make a schedule and, or what, about when people can come and when they can't? And the kids just looked at us and said, Mom, we have never lived that way. Our door has always been open, and we're not going to change now. No schedules. We'll protect you. We'll tell people to leave if we have to, but it's going to be open door. We're, we're, we're going to do this with the church, not without them. And, and honestly, at first I thought, I think that could be a big mistake, and it was the most wonderful thing and the best decision that we made. So we're in the car, and we're on the way to the hospital, and like I said at the time, we were driving to the hospital, and all of a sudden, these thoughts started going through my head. Well, Sherry, this is what you get. This is what you get, Sherry. Because in the course of the three years before this, our, our fourth son graduated from high school. He was salutatorian of his class. He's just this tall, six-foot-two kid, and whenever he would worship, he'd stick his hands out like this, and, and Mike would get done preaching, and he'd come up because he towered over Mike, and he'd kiss Mike on the forehead. He was just my precious boy, and he graduated from high school, and I, I'm still not sure what happened, but he went down a path with drugs that was just as radical for that as he was for Jesus, and there would be times that we would go weeks and we wouldn't hear from him. And I didn't know if he was like dead, you know, or, or alive. He would be sleeping under bridges on the interstate. He, we got a call once from New Mexico because he was in the emergency room there and had a big infected, you know, leg. And then there'd be times he'd call for money and we'd have to say no and hang up and not know if I'd ever hear from him again. 
And you know, if, if you've gone through something like that, and I know that some of you here have, it is hard to go through in any circumstance. It is brutal as a pastor to go through. And I had my small group where people could pray for me, but in, and Mike didn't even know this, but in times when I would be alone and my heart would ache so bad, and I would say, Jesus, will you just take me home because I can't bear it. Mike and I came from these dysfunctional, messed up families, and to, and to know that in my family, I was living that. It was like a personal hell I can't even describe. And driving to the hospital, the enemy capitalized on that prayer that he knew that I had prayed in private. And he said, this is what you get. That's what you get. Remember when you prayed that? And now here's Gabe home, and he's going to see, and look, what's he going to think about God now? And, and, you know, this is what you get, Sherry. That's what you prayed. And it just taunted me and taunted me. And so driving to the hospital, I just, I told Mike what I was going through. And Mike just started sobbing. He really couldn't talk. And when I, I got to the hospital room and I got in there, and here's two people from our church waiting already. Our worship leader and another young guy, they're waiting for me in my room. They are in my room before I'm there because we didn't close the door, right? And so I'm getting undressed, and, I'm, I, and the nurse comes in with rubber gloves and a mask and, and a gown for pills for me to swallow that she has to be masked and gowned to hand to me because she can't touch them. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, you know, what, what am I signing up for? And, and, you know, putting IVs in and trying to hang chemo bags. And, and so I climb up into the bed and she's doing her thing and she's trying to talk to me. And I said, could you be quiet just for a minute? And I look at Eddie and David and I go, okay, we have to do business right now. You got to help me because I just feel like I'm going to die because nobody knows this. I just confessed everything to them. This is what I prayed. I, I prayed so many times for God just to take me home, and now, now it's going to happen, you know? And they said, be quiet, Sherry. And, and then they just started praying. And I looked down at Eddie. Eddie had his shorts on, and he's got this great big cross tattoo right here. I tell him now, that's mine too. You're sharing that with me. And because he just started praying, and he just started nailing all those lies to the cross. We nail those to the cross and he just, they just started praying for me, and it just lifted. I never felt that again, never. In that room, it just lifted for me, you know? And we just, we just need each other, right? And I lost my place. I do that a lot of times when I, when I, when I do this. But the, the thing that I've, I've learned through some of this is that we ask all the wrong questions when things go wrong, when we're overcome by pain, when, we, when life doesn't turn out like it is. We ask all the wrong questions, don't we? We want to blame God. And then the enemy's there, and he just reminds us of all of them. And we listen to that. And somebody asked me once, they said, you know, um, Sherry, why you? They came into my room. Oh, I'm so sorry. Why you? And the first thing out of my mouth was, why not me? Why not me? Do I get some special pass that, that I can be a, a pastor that's prayed with people all over this? I've been all over that hospital floor praying for people. Mike and I loved to do that. And you know what? Every time we walked out, we would thank God that we were healthy and that we weren't there. It was my turn. Why not me? Why do we ask those questions, why me? You know, why not me? 
Why was Bonhoeffer hanged at 39? Why did Jim Elliot, who was reaching people, nobody else, killed by the very Indians he was trying to reach? Why today are there thousands, tens of thousands people trapped in human trafficking? Why do we even ask those questions? Because there's an enemy and he hates us and he hates humankind. But there is a God and he is good and he is faithful even in the middle of our pain. You know, and one of the things we told our kids in that circle was we said, look, we promise you that we're going to tell you the truth about everything. You never have to worry. And, we told, and the other thing, I looked them in the eye and I said, and you're going to be honest with me because fear doesn't cast out faith. Faith rises up in the face of fear, even when you say it out loud, even when you pray, God, take me home, because I can't stand it. But when you say your fears out loud, faith rises up, and it casts out fear. And we need to ask the right questions, and we need to be honest with God, because he's good, and he's loving, and he's kind. And the darkness cannot stand light. One, one verse that helped me so much through this was Job 12, 32. And it says, he shines like a spotlight into caves of darkness. And he hauls deepest darkness into the noonday sun. Do you understand what that says? It means he goes and finds the darkness and he hauls it out into the noonday sun. And we think we've got to keep all our fears inside ourselves because we can't say it out loud. When I said my fears out loud and those brothers that loved me hauled that sucker out into the light, it didn't even have a chance. Right? And that's why we don't, we should ask the right questions because God is good. Psalm 139 says, Then I said to myself, Oh, he even sees me in the dark. At night, I'm immersed in the light. It's a fact. Darkness isn't dark to you. Night and day, darkness and light, they're all the same to you. Overcome with pain, so surprised by power. If you ask anybody who's really suffered and Jesus has been with there, I think they'll honestly tell you they were so surprised by the power of God, the sweetness of God in suffering and pain. It's real. Jesus really spoke to me when um, I was checked into the hospital, and, and, and somebody slept with me every night those first six to eight weeks. Sometimes it really just bugged me, but they would not leave me. Not, it was either my kids or Mike would stay with me. And when I was checking in, I, I, I was really on this roll. Like, you know, they, they educate you, especially the nurses. I, I got so close to the nurses on my oncology floor because they would just start to tell me, you know, this is what's going to happen, and, and we've got to bring all your, your counts down to zero, and that's, you're going to be susceptible for infections. Most leukemia patients get infections. And I was on this roll at first, like, nope, not me. Nope, I'm not going to do that. I, you know, I, I am going to be an uh, overachiever. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and then once, in, in just the stillness, the Lord really spoke to me and said, and very lovingly and said, Sherry, you're going to suffer. And, and I just thought, 
I am. <laughs> and, and he just kept saying it to me, you're going to suffer. And he said, I will never leave you. You are going to suffer, but I am never going to leave you. But sometimes you're going to suffer so much, you're going to feel like you can't get to me. And he brought me back to Mark and said, and that's when my people are going to drag you on the mat, and they are going to bring me to you, and I'm going to heal you. We don't suffer alone. Jesus is with us and never leaves us. But if we think that we can suffer without our brothers and sisters, you know, that happens in China in a cell when there can't be anybody else there. And I know God sends his angels. But remember this morning, we are irreplaceable. You are irreplaceable in the life of someone who's suffering. And that's what I found true to me. People were in my room all the time. And I had to give up privacy. You know, it was just like the doctors would come in and check. And I, it was just like, I didn't care. I wanted people's presence there. You know, my room on the oncology floor was the place to be. I couldn't figure out if it was the people there praying for me or my three single guys that were pretty good looking that the nurses that were single wanted to get to know. But either way, my room was the place to be. And there was laughter and there was, there, there, there was so much joy even at times in suffering. And yes, even funny things. Like, you know, I said they had to bring my counts down low and they keep a sheet there and every time they check, they, they put your red, your white, your platelet count on there. And, 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 and then I had another board because I had four different kind of chemo bags and then I took chemo pills. And the first week, one of the bags was uh, uh, for seven days, you had a bag, 24 hours a day. And that one really bugged me. It really stunk. And it just was depressing to know that 24 hours a day, this huge bag of chemo. So I made Mike write seven on the whiteboard. And I would just mark, I'd mark one number off, you know, like I just need a visual. And, and then Mike would watch the count till I get down to zero because he'd say, you know, that's the grave and resurrection is going to come, you know. And so one day on Sunday morning, Everybody, uh, there were about 10 people in my room sitting in there, and they're talking to me. They're telling me about church, and Mike zips in late, and he goes right to the white, you know, piece of paper on the, on the wall, and I had really dropped that morning. I think I really did, like, have no, you know, no white cells. I was so low, and Mike goes, Sherry, you are really going downhill fast. That's great. <laughs> and, and everybody in my room goes, oh, like, like that, like out loud. And I laughed so hard. It was such good medicine for me, but it was just so hilarious, you know, just, just things like that. And then like another time, it was like, I, I don't know, it was, must have been midnight. Mike was in the room with me and, and my, all my hair was falling out, which I thought, was no big deal, right? Hey, I'll lose my hair to gain life. But it was a lot harder than I thought it was. For one thing, it's painful. That shocked me. And I said to the doctor, this is not fair. I mean, you're telling me I'm going to go bald and it's going to hurt, you know, because the follicles die and it just, it just was so tender. And and one of the, and, and I actually even tried to hide it from my family and I was so shocked at my reaction to that. But I just couldn't adjust to it. And and you get in the shower, and you wash, and you're, you're weak. You can hardly stand up anyway. And, and then it just, it doesn't like fall out like on Linus and Charlie Brown and all at once. It just, it, you know, comes out in clumps, and you're nauseous and everything. 
And so the one night, Mike had come in late, and I, I finally gave up. I had my little cap off. And Mike comes walking up to me, and he goes, wow, honey, your ears are really big. <laughs> you know, who sees your ears, right? Because they're covered. I'm getting so off track. But, I, but anyway, and then I said, Mike. And, and, and the nurse said, really? <laughs> really, Mike? You know? And so then... So then she walked, she did something else, I don't know. She came back in and Mike goes, he goes to the other side and he goes, but really, your ears are really big. And she goes, I could kick you out of this hospital room. <laughs> but there are those wonderful times when people put you on the mat and carry you to Jesus or make you laugh or all those things are the time when um, I, I had gotten a really bad infection in the lower part of my leg, and they were prepping me to go down for a CAT scan, and the surgeons were coming in and saying, you know, Sherry, I, we may have to take your leg, you know, if, if it's too bad, the infection or, or whatever. And my daughter's there, and, and she's getting ready, and, and I, I was really, really sick at that time. And my daughter, when I went into the hospital, she'd give me one of those, what do you call those little wooden angel things? I keep wanting to say Willow Creek, but that's a church. You know, those, those little angels. Anyway, she gave me one with, that's it, Willow Tree. And, and it had a little lantern on it. It was the thing of faith. And she wrote me this beautiful note, mom, you're the strongest woman I've ever known and full with faith. You know, you're going to come through this and everything. And I believed it all when I first read it. And then they're talking about cutting the bottom part of my leg off. And you can see it's still here. And, and, and I had Alyssa standing there with me. And I looked at her and I went, remember when I said fear and faith can live together in that circle in the living room? Well, let me tell you something. I'm afraid, okay? And I know you gave me that little angel, but I don't have a lot of faith and I just want to go home. I can't do this, okay? And I'm sorry to burst your bubble, but I'm not that strong woman that you thought I was. <laughs> and, you know, I mean, it just looked so gloriously, didn't it? And she just looked at me and she goes, mom, that's enough of that, okay? We're not feeling sorry for ourselves around here. Remember, God is big. Every faith thing I ever said to her, she just threw right back at me, you know? <laughs> and there were all those moments, you know, that if we let people into our life and, 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 and we do life together, that is so wonderful. But then there's those times, too, when you open the door, just like Naomi and just like Job, where... People would come to see me, and they would walk in, and they knew about my son and the problems that we had had. And, you know, they didn't have to say it, but I could feel it when they stood by my bed. They came once. They never came back because somehow I knew for them what I had was catching Somehow for them, the fear that if God could let that happen to me, what could God let happen to them was just so big that they just couldn't take it. Come on, you know we've all had those experiences, right? Where we're brothers and sisters, but we just go ahead and judge each other anyway. And when we do that, we do it just because we're afraid. And you know, somehow staring death in the face surprised me because I felt so much compassion for them because I was experiencing in my life 
this extreme presence of God in suffering that was like nothing I'd ever experienced before in my life. And I had shared and been set free from my fears of the private prayers I prayed before. And I had people putting me on the mat and carrying me to Jesus for my sins to be forgiven. And it was okay when they left my room and never came back. And I could find myself in compassion praying for them that one day down the road they would see that God is really good. And he doesn't judge us when the enemy comes and tries to sift us like wheat in our life. But he comes near and close to us. And he holds us close. That's the kind of experience I had with people who came into my room. Dan Paxton was our area leader at the time. He came up to see me and visit with me once. And he walked in and he said, Oh, Sherry, I feel the Holy Spirit in this room. It encouraged me so much because that was my experience. He, he could smell the smells. A cancer floor has a certain smell. <laughs> Chemo rooms have a certain smell. And he just started to pray for me there and lay hands on me. And he just started to say, Jesus, the name above leukemia. Jesus, the name above cancer. Jesus, the name above death. And he kept saying it over and over. And every time he said it, it was like electricity going down inside my body. And I felt faith rise in my fear that Jesus is the name above all those things. See, you don't have to say much when you're with people who suffer. They don't care how gifted you are or how talented you are. They just care that you're there. Mike was with me in my room once, and we were sitting there, and it was my third time in the hospital. It might have been my third round of chemo. Every time I said I wasn't going to end up in the hospital, and every single time I did end up in the hospital. And this one time, this little old man on a rascal rider, you know those electric wheel things? <laughs> He, he came in and he comes zipping in, comes right up to my bed and he sits there and he puts a sheet of hymns written on there and he, he, he goes, what hymn would you like? And Mike, my protective husband, who hadn't been with me every minute and all the time I was in the hospital, came up and he said, oh, excuse me, sir. We have people that come and sing to my wife. <laughs> you know, and they did. They came in with guitars and stood at my bed many times when I was hanging between life and death, and they sang to me. And he goes, you know, we have a church. It's okay. And, and he was going to back out and leave politely, and I looked at Mike and I said, no, Mike. He comes and he sings to me. We have a relationship. And the man looked at Mike and went, yes, we do. <laughs> I think that's the only time it's okay to cheat. What do you think? And, and he, he sang off tune. I would pick hymns, and he would sing to me, and I would just weep in my bed because he brought the presence of God into my room. Suffering people don't care if you sing off tune. They don't care if you're an rascal writer. They don't care what you look like. They just care that you're there with them. And we make excuses because we think we can't. I mean, this is great up here, you know. But we can't all do this, can we? But we, but we can all come beside somebody who's suffering. And I'm telling you, it makes such a difference. I lost my place again. 
And the other thing that I really learned is the power of hope. This verse, I found it and I love it. Romans 15, 13, it's in the message again. I pray that God, the source of hope, do you see that? The source of hope. You don't drum hope up on yourself, on your own. You, none of us are that good. It's God who is the source of hope. Will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in him. Then you will overflow with confident hope through the power of the Holy Spirit. Through the power of the Holy Spirit. That verse just carried me. When I was weak and I had no hope left, I would just say, Holy Spirit, come. You're the one who brings the hope. We don't even have to do that by ourselves, church. And then I found this, this um, quote by Julian of Norwich. She was a nun in England during the, the, the Black Plague. And she said, just as our flesh is covered by clothing... So are we, soul and body, covered and enclosed by the goodness of God. Yet the clothing and the flesh will pass away, but the goodness of God will always remain and will remain closer to us than our own flesh. God is good. God is good, God is good, God is good. God doesn't bring us pain and suffering, but he uses it to draw us closer to him. We have an enemy and it is not God. God is good. And I was so reminded of this once. Um, Romans 13, 14 says, clothe yourself with the presence of Christ. One night, Early in the wee early hours of the morning, I got up and I, I went to go to the bathroom and get, and get my pole and take it with me. And when I pushed my covers back, um, I actually thought, oh great, I had another accident in bed. Because when you're trashed out with chemotherapy, sometimes your bowels and things just don't cooperate like they should. And I looked back and it was just blood everywhere. It was, I mean, my, in my whole, bled, whole bed and and so Mike got up, he pushed the nurse's button, and they came in, and I said, you know, I, I think like something may be wrong. And they looked at Mike, and they said, get out, Mr. Harder. And Mike said, I'm not, I'm not leaving her. And they said, get out. And so he was out in the hallway, and she said, Sherry, somebody did not hook your Hickman catheter back up right, and this is a blood spill, but it's a chemo spill. And she said, so don't move, just stay here. She said, we'll be back. And so Mike's in the hallway, they're gone, and I'm just sitting in the bed by myself thinking, what's going on? And then suddenly walks into my room, two nurses in hazmat, I mean like head to toe, hazmat, you know, like covered up, like, you know, and I'm like, I feel like I have the plague, you know? And so then they, they just kind of helped me get up out of bed, but then said, wheel yourself into the bathroom, sit there, and they said, you know, take off all your clothes. We really can't touch, you know, we don't really want to come close. We really can't touch you. And by then, I, I, I think this was my second round of chemotherapy, and I was just trashed out. I mean, just so sick, so weak. It's, it's hard to even describe how you feel when you don't have red blood cells. And so I'm sitting in there, and I can barely get my clothes off on my own. And this pole's hooked up to me. My Hickman catheter's here. And... Um, and I'm freezing cold, and then I have to throw that out because they, they're taking it away to throw it away, not even to launder it. I don't even get my clothes back because it's, it's filled with this poison. And as I'm sitting there, and I'm hearing Mike on the other side of the wall, 
And he's saying, Sherry, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay, it's okay. And the nurses are so sad, but they have to follow the protocol. And they're taking care of that before they bring me my clothes and everything else. And I'm sitting there, and I'm cold, and I'm shaking. And all of a sudden, it hits me. And I just start to weep because I feel the presence of God in the bathroom with me. And I just start to cry, and I say, Jesus, you did this for me. You did this for me. And worse, nobody's whipping me. But you did this to you did this for me. And on the other side of the wall, I can hear Mike, are you okay? Are you okay? And I just thought, this is what death must be like. Because we have a father, and he's saying, I'm taking you home. I'm taking All the fear of all that stuff just went outside of me because I felt like somehow I was living it and that Jesus did that for me. And you know what? That's not because I'm brave. Remember, I threw... You know, I'm not brave. I'm not that little angel. It was because the power of the Holy Spirit was bringing hope into my naked body, sitting in that bathroom, not even feeling like I could move. It's the presence of God that brings us strength. It's the presence of God that turns our pain into power. It's the presence of God that will never leave us and never forsake us. The fourth time I went through chemotherapy, I ended up in the hospital. I had a big blood clot. And, um, and that in itself was just like so painful. I had actually miraculously made it through all this chemotherapy with no antidepressants and no like really strong narcotic pain pills. I just, I didn't want it and, and God really helped me. That really had knocked me out. I had to take pain pills. I've never had pain like that in my life. I was discouraged by that. Finally, they got that taken care of, and the nurses came in to take my pulse, and it kept being 35, 40, 35, 40. And then soon, heart doctors start coming in, and, um, you know, and I'm thinking, okay, I'm not a medical, but I don't think this is good, you know, and... So these heart doctors are standing at the foot of my bed and saying, we don't really know what's happened to you, you know, and, and you just may, your heart may just be chemotherapy, all that stuff's really hard on your heart. And, you know, I, we don't really know, your heart might just be wearing out. And so we're going to give you 24 hours, and if your pulse doesn't come back up, we're just really not going to have any choice, and we're going to have to go in, and, and we're going to have to put a pacemaker in there. And at this point in these hospital stays, I stayed by myself, you know, because sometimes people carry your load, and sometimes you have to carry your load, and, and it's rough, cancer patients, families, I mean, they need some help, because it's hard for them, and so I was alone in the hospital, and it was about two in the morning, and I was mad. I was so ticked, because I thought, really? Like, I'm going to make it through four rounds of chemotherapy, a blood clot, I kept my leg, and now I'm going to have a pacemaker. Really? I just was so mad. And, and, I just, and, and for the first time in my whole experience, this is six months into treatment, just constant chemotherapy for six months. And I, I laid there, and I, just, and I also just had 
I didn't sense the presence of God. I didn't feel it with me. I felt so alone, and I laid there. And finally, after about an hour and a half, I just cried out to God. And then it was so funny because the nurses would come in sometimes. And I, when I say cried out, I mean out loud, okay? And so they would come in, and sometimes when I'd be doing that, they'd be, okay, honey, you do your thing, and I'll just be back. And they just walk out, and then they just, like, come back in, you know? And, and I lay there, and I... And I just cried out to the Lord, and I just said, God, okay, I give. Okay, Lord, I give. I'll take the pacemaker, but I cannot live without your presence. And like a flood, I'm telling you, I know that it wasn't Roma Downey, but I'm sure that I heard (laughs) the presence of God just fly into my room. I know you think I'm crazy, but I really, really heard it. And I really, really felt it. And it felt like a blanket just wrapped around me. And I was just like, okay, do what you want to me, but I I can't live without your presence. The next morning, they're prepping the operating room, 35, 40. I get up, and and I say to this one nurse who helped me break rules, I said, come on, I just got to walk or something. I just, you know... (laughs) I walked around. She put me back in bed. I could hardly breathe. I was ready to pass out. And, and, and she comes back in an hour, and she says, Sherry, you got 30 minutes. I said, just take one more time. 54. If you know anything, that means no pacemaker. 54. My heart started coming back. But you know, at that point, I don't even think I cared because I had the presence of God with me. I believe in the resurrection. I believe when 2 Corinthians 4 said that in these clay pots live the glory of God. I believe that the death and the life of Christ live in our bodies together. They can live there together. We don't have to fake it. We're a both-and movement, right? Rich Nathan wrote the book. I believe it. <laughs> you know, I believe that our fears don't pass, don't, don't knock out faith in our life. I believe that we don't have to fake it till we make it or pretend or do any of that stuff. I don't believe that we have to have worship leaders that cheerlead us and hype it all up and fake it. I believe they just have to worship God with all their heart and we follow light right along. I believe in the resurrection. I believe what Harriet Beecher Stowe wrote in Uncle Tom's Cab when she wrote this there are in this world blessed souls whose sorrows all spring up into joys for other whose earthly hopes laid in the grave with many tears are the seed from which spring healing flowers and balm for the desolate and the distressed that's the resurrection. It may be in Uncle Tom's cabin, but it is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. As Brenda comes up to join me, if she would, here's, here's a word that our church got once at a regional conference. I, was, I had hair then, barely, but some hair. And Diane Lehman prayed over our church. And she prayed over the story of our cancer treatment and what that would mean for our church. And she gave us this word, and I'm going to loan it to you. Said, I have sent you to do the impossible. Right? Luke 137, with God, nothing is impossible. I have sent you to do the impossible, so you will depend on my presence. I wept when she said that. 
We do not do the impossible because we're super gifted. We do the impossible when we depend on God's presence. In his presence is fullness of joy. In his presence, every tear is wiped away. In his presence, all our pain is gone. In his presence, where there's bondage, we have freedom. When we're afraid, we get hope. In his presence is where we really live. In his presence is where he drags the darkness and exposes it, and it runs like a baby. It turns to fear. Tonight, I want us to experience the resurrection of Jesus. I want us to experience his presence. I want him to come and out of the ashes and the desolate pain of our life to raise flowers of hope. The seeds that spring that are healing balms for those around us. I don't care how much death you think there is in your life. When I look across this room and I look in your eyes, I see the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the presence of God hovering over you to send you to do the impossible, to believe for the child that's far off, to believe for the husband who doesn't follow Jesus, to believe that if you're single, you are more than a conqueror in Jesus Christ, complete and whole. I believe in the resurrection.